Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, tensions and deaths mount in the Middle East as the world watches and awaits Israel's expected ground invasion of Gaza. I'll talk to former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who is also one of Israel's most decorated soldiers. We'll talk about fighting Hamas, a potential ground invasion, and whether a divided Israel has been united by war. Then, retired General David Petraeus led the American military's fight against insurgents in Iraq, Afghanistan, and more. What lessons from those wars should Israel take into its war on Hamas? Alas Petraeus and his co-author on a new book, Andrew Roberts. But first, here's my take. The crisis in the Middle East has revealed an important reality about the world. While American influence may not be what it once was, it is still true that no other country can replace the U.S., as the pivotal player on the global stage. But to retain that influence, it will need to act wisely and go further than it has yet done. Consider how absent Russia and China have been from this crisis. Over the last few years, both powers have tried in various ways to inject themselves into the region. Russia built up its links with Israel. China helped facilitate the resumption of diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And yet... Since the Gaza crisis broke, neither has been able to play any role in diffusing tensions or providing solutions. The United States, by contrast, has been actively engaged from the start. President Biden's first order of business was to condemn Hamas's terror attacks and stand in solidarity with Israel. Having done this eloquently, he has now shifted to giving them cautionary advice. He urged Israel not to be consumed with rage and reminded them of the United States' response to 9-11, admitting that Washington, consumed with fear and anger, made mistakes. One hopes Israel is listening. The president is right. The U.S. made a series of disastrous decisions after 9-11, for which it is still paying a price. It rushed to build a big new bureaucracy for homeland security, comprising hundreds of thousands of people and two dozen organizations. It expanded executive power dramatically, trampling on individual rights, adding to governmental secrecy, and sanctioning what many would describe as torture. Washington's military strategy was also flawed from the start. Rather than focusing narrowly on the people who planned and executed 9-11, it adopted a vast and ambitious approach that, in George Bush's words, made no distinction between the terrorists and those who harbor them. So the country went to war not just against al-Qaeda, but also against the Taliban, trying to ensure that the latter would never again rule Afghanistan, a goal that entailed a 20-year war that America lost. 
And of course, it also went to war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Washington's response to 9-11, the wars, the bureaucracy, and more, has had a price tag by one estimate of $8 trillion. The lessons for Israel are clear. A ground invasion into Gaza is an emotional response to Hamas's terror attack. Israel is responding with something big and bold, demonstrating that it can go beyond a tit-for-tat approach and do something dramatic. But is that wise? Such a course will mire the Israeli army in the alleyways and tunnels of Gaza. It will almost certainly produce even more humanitarian tragedies in Gaza, further enraging Arab countries and turning world opinion against Israel. And even if, after all this, it wins, what will it have won? Who will govern Gaza after Hamas? Who will be willing to occupy the Strip and battle what would certainly be an insurgency against its authority? No Arab or European country would touch that task, so it will fall to Israel. There was a reason that one of Israel's most decorated soldiers and most right-wing political figures, Ariel Sharon, chose to get out of Gaza. The point of terrorism is to provoke an overreaction. The best response to it is not to lose your head. In the past, Israel had often responded to terror attacks by biding its time, tracking down those who actually planned and executed the mission, and then killing them. That was its response to the 1972 Munich Olympic attacks. If Washington had approached al-Qaeda with a similarly strategic and targeted approach, the U.S. would be in a far better position today. In addition to his counsel of caution, Biden should press the Israeli government to provide some political pathway for Palestinian aspirations. For decades, the United States, under both Democratic and Republican administrations, was seen as an effective broker between the two sides. Palestinian officials trusted American diplomats like Martin Indyk, Dennis Ross, and Edward Deregian because they worked tirelessly to find a negotiated path to a Palestinian state. The U.S. pressed the PLO to renounce terror and recognize Israel, but it also pressed the Israelis to stop building settlements. All those efforts have petered out as Palestinian leadership proved feckless and Israel has been ruled by a series of right-wing governments that do not believe in a two-state solution, have increased settlements, and have turned a blind eye to the condition of Palestinians. These are ideal conditions for Hamas, which argues that there is no nonviolent negotiated solution and that acts of terror are the only option. This is all a tall order for American diplomacy. But the alternative is to let this crisis fester, which could easily result in violence that is even worse than what we are now seeing. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Israel is in battles to its west, its east, and its north. To the north in Lebanon, the militant group Hezbollah is trading fire with Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu said this morning that it will be devastating for Lebanon if Hezbollah joins the war. To the east, some 90 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, many of them in settler attacks, according to human rights groups. More than 700 Palestinians have been arrested there, including almost 500 who are affiliated with Hamas, according to the IDF. 
on Israel's west flank lies Gaza, where Hamas is headquartered and where the death toll is now 4,500. On its border, Israel is massing troops and material, and an IDF spokesman said yesterday that the country's military is focusing on readiness for the next stage of its war. Meanwhile, 28 trucks carrying food and medicine were able to transit into Gaza yesterday via the Rafah crossing from Egypt. 15 more are set to cross today. Joining me now from Amman, Jordan, is CNN's Nada Bashir. Nada, tell us something about the, the humanitarian condition in Gaza, because these numbers of trucks, from everything I've seen, this is a trickle of what would be needed to, to keep these people alive. Absolutely. A trickle is certainly the best way to describe it, Fareed. We haven't seen that influx of aid that is so desperately needed inside the Gaza Strip. As you mentioned there, 15 trucks have been moved towards the crossing area, as seen by our CNN teams on the ground there towards the Rafah border uh, on the Egyptian side. But they have yet to pass security clearance, have yet to actually pass and cross into the Gaza Strip. And of course, there is a huge amount of international pressure on getting aid into those inside Gaza. We know that the civilian death toll is mounting. We know that hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced, and this is all being exacerbated by uh, the ongoing siege. No fuel, no water, food, or electricity is getting in. And we've heard the warnings from the aid groups on the ground. We've heard the warnings uh, from the medical teams on the ground who are struggling to continue to provide uh, crucial medical support uh, during this siege. And now, of course, we've heard the warnings from the United Nations saying that what we are witnessing now is a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza. We heard uh, earlier today from the UN's World Food Program. They are appealing for $74 million to support their relief efforts over the next 90 days. There is a huge appeal for international support on this front. And we have already seen uh, numerous countries stepping up, uh, preparing aid to get to Egypt, to cross in via the Rafah border crossing. But of course, getting it across uh, appears to be the key issue at this stage. And we heard uh, from King Abdullah of Jordan, which has has been amongst those countries preparing aid to travel onwards to Egypt. He spoke uh, very clearly at the Cairo Peace Summit about the need to get aid into Gaza and also about the double standard uh, that he says that the world is seeing when it comes to providing that humanitarian relief uh, for Gaza. Take a listen to this statement. He said, anywhere else attacking civilian infrastructure and deliberately starving an entire population of food, water, electricity and basic necessities would be condemned. Accountability would be enforced immediately and unequivocally. And it has been done done before, recently in another conflict, but not in Gaza. And as you can see, we have seen that outpouring of condemnation uh, from world leaders, particularly here in the Middle East. And we have seen that reaction from the popular front as well, protests taking place, demonstrations in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And in fact, earlier today, my team and I uh, spoke to Palestinian families, Palestinian refugee families who have lived in Jordan all their lives, but still have family members inside the Gaza Strip that they haven't been able to return to, that they haven't been able to meet with. They say they're checking in with them every hour, hoping they're still alive. And what they're hearing from their families is that they simply are struggling to go on with the lack of electricity, running out of food, running out of water. It is a humanitarian catastrophe, as said by the UN. Fareed? Thank you, Nada. Great reporting. Stay safe. Next on GPS, I speak with one of Israel's most decorated soldiers, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak. I'll ask him about the potential ground invasion when we come back. This podcast is supported by NetSuite. Quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com gps. netsuite.com gps. As Israel's military masses on its border with Gaza ahead of an expected ground invasion, I want to bring in someone uniquely qualified to talk about IDF strategy. Upon retiring from the IDF in 1995, Lieutenant General Ehud Barak was Israel's most decorated soldier. He would go on to serve his country as defense minister and prime minister. As prime minister, he led Israel through the Second Intifada or Palestinian Uprising. And as defense minister, he oversaw Israel's massive ground operation in Gaza against Hamas in 2009. Ehud Barak joins me now from Tel Aviv. Um, Prime Minister Barak, let me begin by asking you about this siege. Do you believe it is militarily necessary to have such a dramatic cutoff of water, fuel, food, which means hospitals can't, can't operate? Uh, I don't recall, you know, when the United States have faced insurgencies in Iraq, that they ever imposed this kind of complete siege of a civilian population. Is it militarily necessary, you think? It's not the utmost important uh, element, but it's part of it. And I don't believe that there is already a major crisis in Gaza. Uh, basically, whoever went to the south and uh, lives there in these new camps, tent camps uh, started by the UNRWA, uh, will get these uh, convoys uh, through the humanitarian uh, corridor. And Israel will not, will not let uh, other uh, Gaza feel uh, empty of uh, medical uh, uh, kind of uh, materials for the hospitals and so on. So it's it's important, but it's not the the most important element. Tell me about the the goal. The Netanyahu government has said the goal of their strategy is to destroy Hamas. Do you believe that's possible? Yeah, I think that uh, the the goal should be to uh, eliminate any military capability of Hamas and its capacity to reign over the Gaza Strip. uh, We do not intend to erase the ideology or the wishes and dreams of of, uh, many members of Hamas, and it's all around the Arab world. There are part of a wider power, Muslim Brotherhood and AKP in Turkey and some people in Qatar. Uh, we cannot erase the Hamas as a, an ent- entity, but as a operator, a military operator in Gaza and as the ruler of Gaza, we can do it. Of course, it cannot be completed from the air. It will need this massive uh, ground operation with uh, thousands, probably tens of thousands of boots on the ground. The Biden administration is, uh, from what best we can tell, cautioning Israel 
to be careful not to go in too big to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to kind of devastate uh, uh, Gaza completely. Again, you've done this. Is, is that possible, uh, you know, or are, is the idea of going to have to go in in massive numbers, go door to door, you know, tunnel to tunnel, building to building? Look, it's, uh, I would say that uh, I never used the, the word inevitable in, in uh, military affairs, but uh, I would say that in 90 plus percent that we'll see in the coming days a major invasion into uh, Gaza Strip. It will take, even to take the, uh, the northern part of the Gaza Strip, will take some time, probably uh, two weeks or whatever, three weeks, depend on what pace it all be run, but to clean it from the uh, physical and, uh, and the human resources of the Hamas might take uh, many weeks or, or several months before it's completed. And we are aware we do not intend to stay there forever. The whole operation uh, has to face uh, four different constraints. One is the hostages. The other is the risk that it will spread into much wider conflict with Hezbollah in Lebanon, probably others. Uh, the, the third one is how to manage this uh, dialogue with the international law. We are committed to the international law, and we are fully aware that our universal support and legitimacy will erode a long time when the numbers of uh, people who who are uh, citizens who are uh, hit there will grow. In spite of the fact that the reason for them being there is the fact that uh, uh, Hamas coerced them into becoming kind of human shield. Uh, we are aware of uh, these constraints. And the last one is the question to whom we can pass the torch because we do not intend to uh, uh, stay there for, for years to come. So all these are interacting, interwined, and interconnected uh, kind of uh, constraints. Only those like the war cabinet or the upper echelon of our military command who sits in real time facing the data, the, uh, the facts, and the uh, delicacies that emerge uh, can run it. We cannot predict in advance how exactly it will uh, develop. Uh, and let me just ask you about the, the question you raised. Whom will you pass this to? Because it seems to me that uh, whomever you try, whether it's the Arabs, whether it's the Europeans, whether it's the Palestinian Authority in, in the West Bank, they're not going to want to come into Gaza on the back of Israeli tanks. So how do you solve that problem? Right. I will tell you an anecdote. In 2008, as you mentioned, uh, I was Minister of Defense between one of those rounds that usually ended with certain understandings with uh, Hamas mediated by Egypt and uh, giving relative calmness for a year and a half or two years. In one of them, I thought of the same. Why not to get rid of the Hamas at all and uh, pass it to someone? So I approached Mubarak. And ask him, why don't you arrange once we eliminate Hamas military capabilities, uh, you can demand from us to withdraw with no condition from day one. After three weeks, it was easier at that time. We will capitulate to your demand. You will organize a multinational uh, Arab force led by you, probably Moroccans, uh, Emiratis, uh, whatever, Omanis uh, soldiers, and you take it for a very short period, three or six months, during which you will bring back 
to the place, the originally internationally recognized owner, owner of the place, which is the Palestinian Authority. Your viewers might uh, already forget it, but originally after Oslo Agreement, we gave Gaza to the Palestinian Authority. They were, were removed from power uh, through a violent coup d'etat by the Hamas. So uh, Mubarak answered, no, 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 Barak, you conquered it in 67, it's now yours. I uh, will never, ever put my hands back into it. So I saw, why couldn't I go to the bride itself, to Abu Mazen? So I don't want to cut a, a, a long story short. Uh, Mubar uh, uh, Abu Mazen told me, basically, I cannot afford coming back to power in the Gaza Strip sitting on Israeli bayonets. I didn't like the answer, but I cannot tell you that it doesn't carry certain logic in, into it. But it was 15 years ago. Now, after we have another 15 years of uh, peace with Egypt and Jordan, after we have the Abraham Accord, just two and a half weeks ago, uh, we already discussed the, the trilateral deal with the United States, Saudi Arabia and Israel. And in a way, I suspect the Hamas uh, pointed the timing of the of the attack, which they prepare for more than a year now, in order to torpedo exactly this trilateral uh, deal, which was perceived by them as ignoring the Palestinian issue. So basically, when you think it is this way, probably what was impossible in uh, 2018 is might be possible now, backed by. Uh, uh a Qatari or Saudi finance, uh, financial uh, uh, kind of uh, support and backed by uh, Arab League and probably UN Security Council resolution, they can take the whole area, make it, uh, keep it quiet for a few months after we leave and bring back the uh, Palestinian Authority to take o okay, over Jose, the we, we have to take a, We have to take a break. When we come back, stay with me, Ehud Barak. When I, I will ask Ehud Barak whether the peace plan he proposed between Israelis and Palestinians so many years ago is now a distant dream, or is it something that can still be revived when we come back? In July of 2000, President Bill Clinton welcomed Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat to his presidential retreat at Camp David. Their aim was to end the decades-long conflict once and for all. After two weeks, they appeared tantalizingly close to a historic deal until the Palestinians pulled out and talks broke down. Later that year, violence erupted across the region to begin a Palestinian uprising known as the Second Intifada. By then, prospects of a lasting peace were long gone. Back with me, one of the key players from that summit, Ehud Barak. Uh, Prime Minister Barak, is... Is that dream of a two-state solution, uh, you know, just a complete fantasy at this point? I mean, I think about the map that uh, Clinton proposed right at the end, the so-called Clinton parameters, uh, which I know comes from Dennis Ross and was not accepted by either side. But, you know, it gives you a sense that there was a possibility of a, a kind of rational solution here. The Palestinians got in that map, which was not accepted, but it was close to what, what was being offered, 93%, 94% of what they had. Is all that dead with this wave of settlements that has taken place in the last 20 years and Palestinian, you know, the Palestinian Authority not having much credibility anyway? 
Look, it's not the right time to discuss it because we are now at war. And first of all, we are focused on eliminating the military capabilities of Hamas and making it out of the picture in the, in the Gaza Strip. But if you ask me on the longer term, there is an old Roman saying, uh, if you don't know which port you want to reach, no wind will take you there. And those who sail know that if you have a headwind uh, wind, you have to zigzag in order to reach this objective. I never lose uh, eye contact with this vision. It's not about dreams. It's about a vision for the future, which is needed for Israel, uh, not because of justice for the Palestinians, because our own future uh, security and identity. But there is a great de debate in Israel. The other side of the political map, led by Netanyahu and these two racist messianic uh, uh, guys that he joined hands with, uh, they have a different, they want one state, they want to block the whole thing. In, in a way, at the, at the foundation of this conflict of the last two weeks, uh, sits the, their uh, strategy was taken by Netanyahu in the last uh, five years, could be summarized in the sentence, uh, Hamas is an asset, and the Palestinian story is a liability rather than the other way around. Because why this? Because if the Hamas is still uh, alive and kicking, no one can argue with us, start negotiation with the Palestinians. Since we can easily, uh, the government can easily say uh, Abu Mazen does not control even half of his own people. And with the Hamas, no one will require from us to negotiate with terror organization. So basically, it's an indirect way to block the possibility of two states. So I, uh, it's not the time to deal with it because we have to unite and first of all defeat Hamas on the ground. Later on, there will come a day when we left Camp David, I say whether it takes 5, 15, it's already more than 20, or 50 years. At the end, well, the time will come to make an uh, agreement that will come at certain point. You will need magnifying glass to see the difference between what was on the table and what will be concluded. And few years after a deal will be struck, no one will can explain why the hell it took so long and needed to bury so many people on both sides. Uh, finally and quickly, Prime Minister Barak, you, you said Benjamin Netanyahu is to blame for the greatest failure in Israeli history. Can he survive as prime minister after this failure? You know, if you ask the people, they will tell you no. You know, he got the trust, the mandate from the, for, to build the government some uh, 10 months ago or a little bit more. He, uh, the, the trust evaporated during the 7th of October, totally. No one trusts, especially with these two Michiganers in, the, in his government. Uh, and uh, the, if you look at the polls that were passed in the last week, you will find that 70% of Israeli public wants Netanyahu to resign. Half of them wants to him to resign immediately, others say that the end of the war. But in their mind, they have Israeli war. Six days war was one week. Uh, 73 wars, huge wars, three weeks. Uh, the longest conflict in the last generation, five years ago, was uh, less than two months. So they say, oh, two months, let's bite our uh, lips and, and fight and, and put it on the shelf. But when you start to think in terms of a long war that might say, uh, take, as he mentioned, uh, many months, probably a few years or more than a year, this is uh, paved it in a different way. I don't believe that the public trusts Netanyahu to lead this, uh, this uh, uh, war. 
uh, everyone is happy that uh, Gantz and Eisenkot, two opposition leaders who both happen to be uh, chief of staff of the armed forces and one of them, Gantz, even minister of defense, that makes the people more, uh, feel more uh, secure that uh, irresponsible decision won't be made. Uh, but having said that, people would expect uh, accountability. I, I kind of so, sorry to tell you that there is no Hebrew word for accountability. Think of the reason for it, but it's time to demand accountability. And I think that, uh, you know, everyone tells you, oh, he's over, it's not over. Netanyahu is focused on survival and on um, releasing himself and the what we call the poison machine that blaming uh, others and being responsible is working 24-7. Behind the scenes there are briefing against uh, guns, against, uh, against uh, Eisenhower, against the army leadership, against the intelligence, everyone responsible except for the man at the top. <laughs> Ehud Barak, pleasure to have you on, sir. I hope we can have you on again. Thank you. Next up, David Petraeus and Andrew Roberts on lessons for insurgencies everywhere. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy the gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In his almost four-decade-long military career, retired General David Petraeus faced plenty of insurgencies, mainly Iraq and Afghanistan. What do his insights from an extraordinary career tell us about this new war between Israel and Hamas? David Petraeus joins me now alongside the historian Andrew Roberts. The two are co-authors of the new book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Andrew is, of course, now Baron Roberts of Belgravia, having been elevated to the peerage. Uh, Dave, let me start with you. Um, this issue of destroying Hamas, is that a realistic goal? I think it is a realistic goal, but it's going to be exceedingly difficult. Uh, We've seen how long it takes to clear cities roughly the size of Gaza City, nine months for the Iraqi security forces to clear the Islamic State out of Mosul, as an example, with our assistance. IDF much better, much more capable, but still it's going to be very, very tough. And how they do it is very important. Uh, Again, we had a question on the wall always, will this operation take more bad guys off the street? than it creates by its conduct. And you've got to be careful that the answer to that uh, is going to be yes. And there has to also be a vision for the future. They can accomplish this mission, but then keep in mind that the definition of destroy in military doctrinal terms is render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. So whatever it is that follows has to ensure that this cannot be reconstituted. Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad will try to come back so that whatever it is that takes over from the Israelis, and they have to determine that urgently. Ehud Barak was absolutely right on that. Uh, But they're not going to just do humanitarian assistance and reconstruction. They're going to have to conduct a counterinsurgency campaign to keep Hamas and the Islamic Jihad from coming back. When you did the surge, one of the things that seemed to me so successful in that post-operation was 
you brokered a reconciliation yes. between the Sunnis and the right. Shias politically. Yes. So, I mean, do you need some kind of political vision? Very much so. There has to be a vision for the people in uh, Gaza, for the Palestinians, that distinguishes very clearly. The war is not on them. It's actually to make their lives better. If they will reject Hamas, their life will be better. By the way, the same for the, those in the West Bank. Uh, there has to be that. And again, what we did is we said to the Sunnis, if you'll break with al-Qaeda in Iraq, support us first and then the government. And then later, the same with the uh, Iranian-supported Shia militia, let's strip you away. And of course, we defeated then the, the other elements, the, the militia that remained, and also al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Sunni insurgent groups. So that, that vision is crucial. Uh, and again, I think Ehud Barak had that exactly right as well. A quick thought on uh, Hezbollah before I go to you. Do you think Hezbollah will launch a serious uh, attack from the north? I don't think they want to do that, but the pressure will grow as the damage and destruction inevitably. There are going to be civilian casualties. Urban combat is fiendishly difficult, and I can't imagine a, co a context that is more difficult than this one. Hundreds of miles of tunnels, uh, suicide bombers, uh, enemy that doesn't wear uniforms, uses human shields, uh, civilians, and of course the over 200 hostages that are still there. Uh, so that's going to be very, very challenging uh, for them. And, and again, you have to have this vision that's going to try to separate the people from Hamas, uh, again, also in the West Bank as well. Hezbollah, though, got hammered in 2006, much worse than we realized at the time. We reassessed it several occasions. They'll do the occasional attacks and all the rest of that. I don't think they want to launch all 150,000 rockets, which would be devastating for Israel, but then would be even more devastating for Hezbollah, and they know that. Andrew, so could I just yeah. add that yeah. operationally, of course, it's also very good for Israel uh, to be able to promise the Palestinian Arabs that they will be able to go back to Gaza because then you could physically also separate them from the uh, Hamas that uh, you're trying to fight in Gaza City. Lots in history that, that bears that out. Uh, historically, um, you talk about Malaysia as being one of the great successes of counterinsurgency. What do you draw as the key lesson to succeeding in a counterinsurgency? Well, the way that Malaysia worked is that they were able to offer the people independence. Uh, Malaysia became independent in 1957, and that was immensely important in winning what was said at the time to be the hearts and minds. That um, phrase was coined that in that was the campaign. phrase, yes, yeah. exactly. And that mat they matter, and yeah. they matter here as well. And Sir Gerald Templer... Um, coined that phrase and, uh, and it worked. And it wasn't just in Malaysia, it also worked in the Oman campaign where they were able to offer progress, actual physical, uh, uh, educational, um, agricultural, medical progress. And that's also something that obviously uh, could be an important part to play here. All right, stay with us. Uh, next up, I'm gonna talk to General Petraeus and Lord Roberts about the other major conflict in the world right now, Ukraine, which we might have forgotten about, but is still going on when we come back. We are going to pivot to the world's other major war in Ukraine. The long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive is stretching into its fifth month, and many in the West remain concerned that it is lagging. As winter approaches, what hope does Ukraine have against its much bigger, more powerful adversary? We are back with General David Petraeus and the great historian Andrew Roberts. Uh, both of you have been to, uh, to, uh, to Kiev and to, and to Ukraine, in fact, and you were there just a few weeks ago. The j conventional wisdom is the Ukrainian counteroffensive has not gone as well as planned. The Russians are fighting back better, harder, smarter. What can you tell us about all this? 
Well, first of all, I think one of the key factors I'm watching for is do the Russians actually crack and crumble at some point? No plan survives contact with the enemy. The Ukrainian plan did not. They had to adjust from armored breaching. The minefields are just much longer, deeper than anyone realized. So they've used infantry squads. That means you're going to gain 100, 150 meters a day as opposed to several meters if you get a breakthrough. The pressure, though, has been unrelenting on the Russians, and I think we need to see where that does lead. They intend, this is not just a summer and a fall offensive, they're going to fight all winter, and they've stated that publicly. Beyond that, we tend to overlook what they've done against Crimea, and the the Russian bases there, the the naval base of Sevastopol has had to be evacuated, basically, because of the Russian losses due to the very diabolically clever maritime drones that Ukraine has developed. Uh, Ukraine hit the actual headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet during their command and staff meeting. Uh, They're reducing the capabilities of the airfield. This all takes time, though, and what they're trying to do is to reduce the logistical capacity to support these forces so that at some point in time, again, they might achieve that kind of breakthrough. But no, I think it's accurate to say that the, the hopes... Uh, for the counteroffensive had not been fully realized, but it's not over, and they're still driving to be able to cut that key line of communications that comes in from Russia along the southeast and southern uh, coast. Andrew, when I look at Russian history, the thing that worries me is they seem to be able to fight very long wars with very large numbers of casualties. They do when they're on the defensive, and that's very true historically, but actually they're not that good on the offensive. And this, um, Russian soldiers recognise that this is an offensive war into somebody else's country. And historically there, uh, it hasn't been such a happy um, prospect. The other thing, of course, and something that comes out very strongly from our book, is how important morale is. And the morale of an army that has taken a very serious bloody nose and also doesn't necessarily see any quick way to victory, is going to be um, less than the Ukrainian army, which has still not the same kind of morale that it did at the uh, early stages of this war, but still, of a, um, historically at least, at a level that, um, that uh, can uh, win a victory. In a sense, is the Ukrainian situation a little bit like, say, the Algerians? You know, the, French, the, the Algerians trying to get independence. The French say, no, we're going to... The French, by some accounts, killed a million Algerians, but the Algerians never gave up. That's right. And also, of course, the other thing you saw in the Algerian war was the horrific use of torture and brutal uh, viciousness, which you're also seeing with the way in which the Russians are treating ordinary Ukrainian people. And that ultimately has uh, the effect of... um, of just enraging the population and, and in, in a sense, helping its morale to want to push through to ultimate victory. Has, has President Biden been handling Ukraine well in Europe? I think he, together with Congress, actually have led the effort uh, much better, certainly, than Vladimir Putin expected, and I think quite, quite impressively. Uh, $44 billion worth of assistance is a, is a very substantial amount. We do need to continue to do more. I hope Congress can uh, come together on that issue. Uh, There have been decisions, I felt, that should have been made more rapidly. Some of the capabilities that uh, Ukraine did not have during the summer might have been there and might have helped them uh, more than marginally, I think. But by and large, I think the U.S. has led well, effectively, kept NATO together, kept the Western world together, kept Russia from driving a wedge between uh, Europe and North America, and also led the effort on the Uh, personal economic and financial sanctions and export controls and now going after the sanctions evaders very effectively as well. Uh, The Russian strategy clearly, as far as I can tell, is to wait until November 2024, 
hope that Trump gets elected, hope they can cut a deal where Trump will essentially sell the Ukrainians down the river. What do you say about that? Well, I think it's a concern what the outcome of the election is, without question. Uh, uh, will someone be elected who might actually not support this effort, which I think is as right versus wrong as anything in recent memory, except until what happened on 7 October, which was also absolutely horrific. And keep in mind, when we think about that, that would be the equivalent of America having lost 50,000 innocent civilians on 9-11, as opposed to the nearly 3,000 that we lost. Um, final question, Andrew. This is an extraordinary book. How did the two of you write it across the, the Atlantic? <laughs> um, well, we got together immediately after the Russian invasion and decided that we were going to write this book. And uh, um, we divided up the chapters by saying, I, I said you, uh, that um, David would um, work on all the chapters of the countries he's invaded and Vietnam, <laughs> and I did the rest. <laughs> all right. Uh, must have been lots of emails. Thank you both. Thousands. Amazing, amazing book. Thank you for it. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.